The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Dino Casanis, Ph.D., received his doctorate in biophysics at Pennsylvania State University and served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Nigeria and Kenya. In addition, he studied Tibetan Buddhism with teachers of different lineages, including Dr. Yeshi Danden, former physician to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He has studied as well with masters of lineages of Tao and with lineage teachers of an intense form of Taiwanese Qigong. Dr. Kazanis is the author of a remarkable book, The Reintegration of Science and Spirituality, Subtle Bodies, Dark Matter, and the Science of Correspondence. This very readable book provides a basis in physics for mystical spiritual phenomena, and new discoveries from science regarding dark matter are used to explain unanswered questions on the nature of paranormal phenomena, non-local mind, the power of prayer, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, reincarnation, and a whole range of mystical phenomena. Dr. Kazanis also presents an inspiring perspective on the traditional teachings and practices mankind has utilized to experience these phenomena. Dr. Kazanis, welcome to NDE Radio. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's uh, th- this. This will be an interesting discussion because your your book hits on a lot of things that I've always wondered about. Uh, Dino, you're right that the uh, quantum mechanics shows that uh, we can see and touch things in this world because of the electric charge of particles. In fact, all our senses and experience of the physical world is of electrically charged particles. So particles without that charge are invisible to us and untouchable as well. Would that be the construct for the world of the spirit? Well, that's uh, a beginning. Uh, You know, I always like to... Uh, I mentioned that a lot of people don't really uh, understand how science operates, including some uh, scientists and how it develops. And I've never had uh, a, uh, a physics class or a teacher who simply told me that everything we see and experience is due to basically one force, the electric charge. And that's because atoms, as we discovered through quantum mechanics, Atoms are made up of charged particles. They have a positive nucleus with a negatively charged electron traveling about it. And our whole experience, everything that we normally see and share is made up of atoms. And atoms are operated by charge, electric charge, best described by quantum mechanics. So, you know, the fact we can see things, hear things, touch things, smell things, feel things, all of that really is just due to one force, and that's the electromagnetic force due to charge. Um, So that's a good place to start. So if uh, objects don't have electric charge, they're actually invisible to us. So um, it's kind of interesting, but I remember back in maybe 45 years ago or so, 
when I was first started getting interested in mysticism, <clears throat> I read a. I was when I was reading mysticism, I was always kind of amazed by how deeply they understood certain things. But I always felt that their understanding of the physical world was really off because I had a strong background in physics, and they kept they you know you'd find them talking about these different planes of matter. And I thought, well, that's really kind of silly. You know, I, I know about physics. Uh, so I thought, and they really, uh, you know, there's, an, you know, no planes of matter, other forms of matter as such. Uh, I mean, we pretty much thought we knew everything uh, in physics in the sense of matter. That was our domain. So um, at the time in the 1970s, nobody knew about uh, dark matter. It wasn't... Um, our uh, consciousness of physicists or anyone. And uh, in fact, you could read all or watch uh, all of Carl Sagan's uh, uh, episodes on Cosmos and nowhere in there will he uh, mention uh, dark matter. That's not true of Neil deGrasse Tyson, who comes along later. And so he does mention dark matter because dark matter was actually discovered during the 1980s and uh, uh, one person really involved in that cosmologist by the name of Vera Guth actually you could say uh, uh, really developed the understanding of dark matter through the 1980s and uh, I wasn't in physics at the time so I didn't know this was going on until uh, oh 1993, when uh, they actually had the first international conference on dark matter. And so some episodes, well, some stories came out. I happened to come across a well-written article in the Smithsonian about dark matter. And because I happened to be um, involved in uh, uh you know, having studied uh, mysticism and such uh, from an intellectual point of view mostly. <laughs> um, you know, by the time I finished reading that article, I began to realize, you know, we live in a really different universe than what we thought. So what we're really looking at here are uh, essentially uh, other, I was quite convinced it was other types of matter, other types of atoms, just as uh, the uh, mystics had been uh, talking about. And so this really fit right in. And actually that was back in 93. And I was quite convinced at that time that uh, people would make this uh, connection. And I waited a year and nobody did. I couldn't find uh, any uh, people suggesting there were other types of atoms in the universe. And this apparently has never occurred to physicists that this is what uh, dark matter is. And it really wouldn't have occurred to me, you know, had I not been studying mysticism. So I began to realize what mystics meant by uh, uh, planes of matter was actually literally other periodic tables of matter. So the universe, we know the one periodic table that's made up of charged particles, or protons and neutrons and nucleus and electrons going about it. But uh, we know nothing about uh, any other type of atom. It's never been suggested. 
Now, it's not like dark matter is just a small part of the universe. So in fact, um, dark matter, probably if you look at just matter, makes up 85% of the universe. So uh, it's, it's the vast majority of matter uh, that exists. Uh, and so it strikes me as strange that uh, really scientists uh, have tried hard to really uh, dismiss it because I think it would be overwhelming for them to discover uh, anything uh, as profound as what I'm suggesting. So uh, maybe in order to get a better idea of that, uh, I always like to kind of go back uh, because people tend to feel that science develops uh, oh, in a very systematic, methodical way. A led to B understanding and B led to C and our understanding and D. It's a very, that's how it's taught. It's taught as a very linear, logical, uh, <clears throat> you know, way of uh, uh, progressing in the universe. And, you know, I do want to say, I mean, science is still our best tool right now for operating, working in the physical universe. It's a very valuable tool. So I don't want to people get the idea of putting it down. But, uh, you know, if we go back 120 years, you know, we discover, if you look at how people uh, or physicists viewed the universe at that time, just to pick out a few things, uh, for one thing, they, uh, relative to atoms, they thought that atoms were solid pieces of matter. They weren't make up, made up of any other particles, and they also always existed. There was no beginning for any of the atoms or any of the universe. <clears throat> and... Uh, these uh, these few things and many other things were really never uh, questioned. Uh, I mean, people weren't asking uh, atoms made up of other particles. Uh, that was something that wasn't even on the table. Uh, the universe was regarded as steady state. There were always the same number of atoms in the universe. And, and the Milky Way was the entire universe at that point. Uh, so they weren't even aware of other galaxies, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. So... Yes. So the uh, uh, the the interesting thing there is Thomas Kuhn wrote a book uh, maybe forty years ago, fifty years on the structure of scientific revolution. So he tries to point out how actually you know science doesn't proceed in this very linear logical way, but actually has this very revolutionary state. So you know around one hundred twenty years ago we had a major revolution. Uh, uh, going on in physics. In fact, if you just look back 120 years ago, there were physicists discouraging people from going to physics because they couldn't see anything they really didn't understand. So they really thought physics, they had completed the picture of physics. It was over. It was done with. And uh, that's always a telling story. Uh, <laughs> and you can find that, you can find that in every... Uh, every science and, and, you know, something surprisingly comes along. Well, what's, what comes along uh, in physics at the beginning of the 20th century is you have Einstein for one, you have uh, also uh, people were really exploring unknowingly the atom. I mean, <clears throat> the structure of the atom was kind of accidentally discovered. Uh, by uh, one of Rutherford's students. They used to bombard uh, 
piece of gold foil with uh, elf particles, and then they would just detect the number of particles that you know went through the gold foil and on this fluorescent screen that would show up. This had to be counted by eye, so they get a pattern. And one day they decided, well, I guess we better see what happens uh, if any of them bounce back. They weren't expecting any of them to bounce back, but they, but they did. And this experiment is really kind of not well known, but it's one of the things that led to discovery of the nucleus, because what Ruth realized is if something like an alpha particle is bouncing back off of uh, an atom, and only a few of them are here and there, it's scattered amount. Then the, he was able to calculate and determine that the uh, most of the mass of an atom was in the uh, uh, in a very small confined area, and eventually they discovered were able to show that it was protons and neutrons, and that the electron was you know was not sitting in the nucleus at all, but it was traveling around it. So mm. somebody, it, it, yeah, I, I, I'm. Curious if um, I mean we in the 20th century discovered the structure of the of the world that we can see and touch, but uh, how did they ever come up with a discovery of dark matter if it's invisible? Okay, yeah, well that's a good place to start. Move ahead up to the 1980s, and basically <laughs> what they discovered. And by the way, just to extend that a little, I mean. We now know they were back then. They were thinking there was like one Milky Way and and uh, uh, the uh, some observations were done by Hubbard, who maybe discovered a handful of galaxies. Now they suggest there's somewhere between 200 billion and maybe two trillion galaxies. That's quite a jump. Yes. Uh, they didn't know about nuclear forces back then until they discovered that there was a nucleus for the atom. All of these things were totally unexpected and not really uh, being looked for. So uh, some co cosmologists in studying distant galaxies were discovering that the behavior of these galaxies, for one, were just uh, not correct in terms of the visible mass that was present. So after you know really careful testing and observations, they realized that there has to be a lot of uh, invisible uh, mass in these uh, distant galaxies and then iris actually as well and so and then when they measured that it would uh, uh, really come out to be much more than than the uh, visible mass so they realized uh, that uh, galaxies contained a lot of invisible matter and there was a lot of interstellar matter because dark matter Actually, one of its properties is that, of course, it does have mass, and mass does bend light according to Einstein's general relativity, which is the one on gravity. Ah. So gravity actually bends light. So they were also by observing uh, light traveling from distance galaxies and stars, they could tell that it was being bent. And so they would observe it from <clears throat> from different points of the Earth. So they were able to determine there was an awful lot of uh, invisible matter in this universe. Mm. And not everybody wanted to buy into that. Uh, early on, they, uh, some of the physicists were trying to um, 
explain all of that by changing uh, Newton's uh, equations, either his laws of gravity or his law of, uh, of you know, F equals ma. By modifying that, they could, to a certain extent, uh, you know, account for this uh, phenomenon that they were seeing. But eventually, there's other more detailed work done, and so that at this point is pretty much gone by the wayside. So most people, most physicists, vast majority, agree that there's a lot of invisible matter in the universe. So, of course, my suggestion was that, uh, which is a big leap, but nevertheless, I saw that uh, having confidence in uh, mystics and also understanding that this invisible, these invisible planes of matter played a role in our universe uh, for them. What I discovered was that what the mystics meant by the planes were actually uh, entire uh, periodic tables is how I would interpret it now. I don't think they could have used that wording back then. But, uh, you know, entire periodic tables of matter. So there literally could be dozens of them. Now, usually... Uh, we write the subtle bodies up into, it depends what culture you're working with. Uh, uh, in, uh, oh, in, in mystical Christianity, you usually have uh, seven uh, subtle bodies, such as the, of course, the visible body, then there's the etheric body, uh, uh, and uh, um, the uh, mental body, and various, uh, the soul and those types of bodies. Uh, whereas when you're talking about the uh, Eastern uh, mysticism like of India, you basically have five subtle bodies, which is what I normally use because it's the simplest. From, uh, China apparently has uh, a setting, a, a system of uh, six bodies and go back to ancient Egypt, there are really a dozen uh, subtle bodies. Uh, so they, like I say, seem to have been much more into it, aware of it. You know, I think you'd have a very, if you were aware of all this other subtle matter in the universe, you'd probably have a hard time coming up with Newton's laws because Newton's laws seem to be really confined to uh, mostly to the universe of charged uh, matter. I think the physics gets a little more complicated when you start including all these other uh, types of uh, subtle matter that well at some at some point the uh, um, I guess perhaps you could call it the enlightenment science verged away from the from the mystical interpretations of the middle ages and and um, alchemy and subtle bodies and so forth and went off on its own and just had nothing but scorn for the other way of seeing things even though, it just perhaps two different names for the same thing. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, as we began to focus, strangely enough, I think Newton would have been surprised because he was so much into alchemy, but as we began to focus more into uh, charge matter and became less aware of the subtle matter in the universe, then that seems to be the only direction that science has been going in for a long time now. So it's really time for that uh, reintegration back into the matter plus subtle matter and uh, the metaphorical 
universe of, uh, you know, the alchemical uh, way of uh, viewing the world uh, because uh, those uh, systems, alchem the <coughs> alchemy, really uh, lead to uh, the understanding and the wanting to explore uh, chemicals and, uh, and eventually the development of a periodic table. Um, it's the same with astrology and astronomy. It was the utilization of astrology and wanting to be more and more accurate about the predictions that astrology would make that eventually led to astronomy. And as we seemingly limited ourselves more into the world of charged matter, uh, we became less and less aware of the, of the mystical. Uh, so it, it really is time to move back in that direction. And that's what I'm hoping I can help people do with this book. Do you, do you think that perhaps there was some pre-civilization or prehistoric knowledge of dark matter that would have implanted these ideas? I mean, how did how did people begin to think of, of subtle bodies? And and uh, I mean, it's it's not something that you would normally think of in a three-dimensional world, right? But I think the uh, mystics of all ages were really able to move their consciousness into a level where they could actually see these subtle bodies. I mean, they must have been able to be, uh, because they just had too much awareness, too much knowledge of it. The, the, the chakras and their, how they're arranged. They even talk today when they, when they discuss those things, as you talk to, uh, you know, mystics who have, uh, studied these things, they can, they uh, can tell you how many, nadis or fibers that are in the subtle bodies and, and the chakras and where they are. And uh, uh, what they don't talk a lot about is, is the, uh, you know, the external world uh, of uh, a dark matter that they might experience and possibly because that's less important. But I do think if you were to read uh, one of the people that does talk about it uh, is uh, Swedenborg and, and his, uh, uh, books, uh, you know, Swedenborg for a long time uh, published the, his explorations of heaven and hell and really other worlds um, under uh, a pseudonym. And it was quite a while before people, although some people apparently were suspicious that it was him, but Swedenborg was an extremely well-known person, the type of person who the newspapers would uh, tell you what he was doing, where he was going each day. So uh, he, he was a really very well-known person. And then uh, suddenly, for some reason, or somehow, I should say, uh, discovered the, the mystical nature of the universe and started exploring that. So uh, he's uh, influenced, actually, people like uh, William Blake, who... Uh, uh, does uh, you know mention I talked about William Blake talking about how uh, that the creation of matter was in stages. It was uh, you had extremely subtle matter, less subtle matter, you know, and less more and more dense until you eventually create charged matter, which is what the uh, the Big uh, Bang is. Because if you look at the Big Bang. It really is the creation of what is necessary 
to uh, create uh, charged uh, atoms. So that's, uh, uh, you know, William Blake obviously had an understanding. I don't know how they could get so far. You know, I always feel like even if you go back to the Bible where they say the universe is created in seven days, well, they could really just be talking about basically seven, you know, stages of creation. Uh, stages being stages of matter, stages of atomic matter, really. So, There's a, a scientist named uh, Gerald Schroeder who wrote a book in which he equated the, the six days of creation with the way the time expanded from the moment of the Big Bang and the distortion of time so that he, he was really looking at this uh, from the point of view of if you were standing outside of the Big Bang, you could have six days go by, the equivalent of what would be six days for us. But from for us, looking back through that expanded time, it looks like 14 billion years. Yeah, well, well, I, I, that could be one way of looking at it. But I really feel, though, that dark matter existed uh, before what we regard as the Big Bang, that uh, and I think there's a mistake that physicists someday some physicists are going to realize that dark matter could have existed before the Big Bang, and they'll be able to solve some of the problems they have with modeling the Big Bang. Because one of the problems you have in modeling the Big Bang from a scientific point of view is that uh, no matter what you do, you seem to be able, well, the Big Bang will create as much matter as antimatter. So uh, when you look at the universe, though, after the Big Bang, there's not much antimatter, it's almost all matter. Well, if you're creating the universe out of a, a vacuum, you're gonna be stuck with that problem. But if there was some matter with certain properties that existed before the Big Bang, I think that problem uh, could be overcome. So that's one of the things uh, that I, uh, I really like to point out. And it's something that the physicists have not yet even considered, I, and I hope they do at some point, because I really think it will solve some of their modeling problems on the Big Bang. They always have dark matter showing up, you know, very early after the Big Bang, but not, they can't think of it existing before. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Are you saying that there is antimatter in, encapsulated somehow by dark matter? No, I just don't think that the uh, amount of that Antimatter uh, gets created in uh, the universe if you have a certain type of dark matter existing before the event that created matter, uh, charged matter. Mm. I think I read somewhere that when matter and antimatter were created, that there was a discrepancy in the amounts, and that what we have today in our world is the leftover from uh, the annihilation that took place with between the the remaining matter and antimatter. Yeah, they uh, they have tried to find a way to explain away the lack of antimatter, but uh, I think ultimately the way that that will be explained away is by putting dark matter before the creation of charged matter, so that very little, if any, antimatter is actually created at the uh, at the event. Would that be a separate uh, a separate Big Bang that would create your uh, your dark matter? Well, what I'm saying is there's a series of Big Bangs. We probably started out with extremely 
extremely subtle matter, and eventually made our way through a series of events. And this is what uh, William Blake seems to suggest, that there are a series of atom-creating events, the last of which is uh, charged matter. And it's the creation of charged matter is what we're calling the Big Bang. We can't see all the other events because we don't know how to see them because it's none of it has to do with with charged matter. Mm. Uh, Dino, I, let's let's uh, stop here because we're out of time for today. But uh, let's go on uh, with a with a show for next week as well. And um, in the meantime, tell our listeners how uh, how they can find a copy of your book. Okay, uh, my, well, the best way to find it really is uh, through Amazon, <laughs> and it's called The Reintegration of Science and Spirituality, and there's a paperback edition, and there's also a Kindle book, which is a little cheaper. Okay, <laughs> well, my thanks again to uh, Dino Kazanis for his uh, work integrating physics and spirit. We're going to continue uh, next week on NDE Radio, and we uh, will probably get further into the study of consciousness and perhaps some more discussion of the near-death experience as it relates to dark matter and subtle bodies. So thanks again. Uh, If the listeners would like to hear this show again, just go to um, TalkZone and hit the Past Shows button for NDE Radio, and um, stay tuned next week, Monday, Uh, 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.